0: Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. It's morning here, but it's not morning in the UK, and that is where my guest is tuning in from, Jimmy Vaughn. Thanks for uh, joining me today, buddy.
1: Yeah, thanks for the invite. Uh, thanks for connecting.
0: Well, looking forward to it. It was our friend, uh, mutual friend, Paul Watts, that connected us.
1: Yeah.
0: So he, he's always good for that. He's a good man, and... Uh, yeah. Let's start with not your day job, which is still interesting, but um, I want to talk about being a peer support volunteer. So uh, what got you into that and how long have you been doing it?
1: I kind of – I've run an online support group. Well, I used to run an online support group before I started my new one, which is a long story. And someone messaged me and asked me if I fancied starting a men's mental health peer support group. Uh, And I started that with a couple of lads back in 2019. And uh, it's opened a lot of doors. we have helped a lot of people. And uh, I left for many reasons. And then I joined a local organisation, to which I run two peer support groups through them. One for survivors of male sexual abuse and one for men's mental health. And peer support does work. To be in a room surrounded by people who are struggling as well, you all get like a, a camaraderie and you all start supporting each other. And it's a really good thing. I, I love it. I've got a right passion for it. So how often
0: are most peer support groups held? Like once a week, uh, at, once every two weeks?
1: The, yeah, I do the men's mental health one week left every Tuesday night. And the survivors of sexual abuse When I do every fortnight on a Wednesday.
0: Every other week on a Wednesday. Yeah, every fortnight. Tell me about the before and after of some people, like when they first show up, and what is the transformation that you've seen in others and in yourself because of peer support?
1: Oh, you can see them walking to the room with the weight of world on the shoulders. And when they leave, it's like you've spent years having that anchor on your back, dragging it around everywhere, all that trauma, all that non-talking, you know, keeping everything in. And then when they go and they just, it's just like that relief. And they can leave and you can just see them visibly lift from finally talking and it doesn't matter what it is it can be something from the childhood it could be something what's happened to me last week you know it it could be what's happening at home it could be absolutely anything but teaching them men people you know to talk is a major thing because keeping it in is so self-destructive you end up going down routes You should never go down drugs, drink, fighting, self-harm, suicide attempts, suicidal thoughts, suicidal tendencies. It helps alleviate all them because I know that from my own experience. Helping others helps me, and that's why I, I enjoy it so much.
0: One of the blessings of doing this show is through conversations like this one, I have epiphanies all the time. And I jot them down and try to save them and preserve them. It um, One of the bigger parts of my healing journey also has been peer support, uh, either being a, as a participant or as the facilitator. And I've learned so much about myself and about others as a result of peer support. Mm-hmm. And what it occurs to me listening to you is that I mean, we know, you know, and I know that you have to face your trauma. You you can't sweep it under the carpet and expect it to go away. Time does not heal all wounds. That's a pile of shit. No. It's not true. It makes it worse. Uh, it, it might avoiding it might work for a while, but it will bite you in the butt, guaranteed. And mm. what it occurs to me is that peer support, since we've agreed that you have to face your trauma and you have to process it because it ain't going away, peer support is probably, peer support done right, that is, is probably the safest way to face that trauma. The safest, most effective way to actually face it and and to acknowledge it. Because as some say, you have to name it to tame it. So you have to be able to face it, say, yep, this happened, say it out loud and you know you don't have to get into the gory details or anything like that. It just this happened, and when you do that, it takes the sti- the shame away because it's not a secret. There's only yeah. shame and stigma if it's a secret, and mm. when it's not a secret anymore, agree. it loses so
1: much power over you. It's incredible. Yeah. Yeah, it does. I I know that myself. Yeah, I completely agree with you there. Because shame and stigma are the biggest things when it comes to men.
0: Absolutely. There's a lot of
1: stigma behind men shouldn't talk, they should keep that stiff upper lip. And then there's the shame of what's happened. It's like with me, it's a, it's the sex abuse, sex abuse past. There's a massive amount of shame with that when it comes to men.
0: How old are and you? that's
1: why I do podcasts like this, my posts, my pages. The talks, what I give in universities at, colleges, I help the West Yorkshire police and I I tell my story to help others, to help other men, other women talk about theirs and the more people who talk about it, the more that stigma wall gets broken down and the more, uh, the the better the shame goes away, if you know what I mean, because people realise that they're not the only one and they aren't the only one, it is so widespread.
0: Shame is one of the core drivers towards suicide because the shame Mm. creates isolation. You isolate yourself. You build this wall around yourself to protect yourself from, from the truth and so that nobody discovers your secrets and that Mm. shame isolates you and leaves you alone. And is that disconnection that, that isolation that really is the cause of the pain. And when mm-hmm. when you feel completely alone, that's also a sense of hopelessness, and thus uh, that's one of the driver, not the only driver, but one of the drivers of suicide for sure. Have you yeah, seen thinking you've got
1: nowhere to turn?
0: Yeah, and uh, peer support is just a safe place to do that. How yeah. how old were you uh, when sex abuse started for you?
1: I started getting groomed at fourteen. Uh, I didn't even know what grooming was. It were the police and my ex-wife who explained what grooming was. I didn't know. I had no idea. But the thing with it is you don't realise you're in it until you're that far in it. You can't get out. And it's so confusing. You don't know what's happening. You don't, you know, because you're so young. You know, there's no one really emotionally grown up at 14. You know, you're it's, yeah, it got eight years anyway, It first
0: And how did this affect you moving forward as an adult? Uh, and I ask from a place of experience, as um, many of my longtime listeners know, I was molested from the age of seven to 12. And um, what that did to me then, and I didn't even know, like I didn't realize how it was affecting me. Mm-hmm. um but it did throw off my compass of right and wrong of who I was was I gay was I straight um then of course uh, for a while I really had a problem with gay people you know cuz I saw them as the abuser um but that created an identity struggle that uh for for years and years after Uh, Is that a common theme that you find? Did you find that with yourself? You had to struggle with your identity as a result?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Not regarding sexuality, but I didn't know who I was. Mm. And uh, I still struggle with that at times. I do know survivors who do struggle with identity. And uh, they can go too far the other way. You know, they have to sleep with as many women as they can. Uh, they go to gym to you know to be as try and be as masculine as I possibly can because the struggle with it and the abuse has caused that. Uh when it comes to me, I always wanted to be a soldier. I wanted to be a soldier from a very young age. And that's what led me to join local cadet force and that's where the Pedophile worked. He was part of the Cadet Force. He was the president. So when he abused not just me, but two others. Uh, we found that out when, during the investigation. There were two students from many years ago, and there were three cadets that were found. Uh, because I didn't get in forces, I, after it happened, I started going down the wrong path, started getting involved in drinks, started getting involved in drugs. I went for exam for army and just failed it miserably because... You know, if if that hadn't have happened, I'd have been right as rain, but I started going down that path, and because they didn't let me in, I went further down that path. So I ended up a lot of fighting, a lot of drink, a lot of drugs, a lot of self-harm, and a lot of uh, anger issues. I had suicidal tendencies. And this was all before I'd reached age of, what, 18? So by the time, I, when I started in my 20s, I got the job where I am now. And they've been fantastic with me. They have really, really helped me over the years. Uh, the drugs sort of fizzled out, but the drink carried on. And uh, I live by two rules now. I don't drink when I've got my lad. And I don't drink when I'm working. And that stops me from being an alcoholic. Because that only puts me down to one or two nights a week when I can drink. So by living by them rules, it really helps me. But it took five years of therapy using your CBT, psychotherapy, counselling, EMDR. EMDR helped me massively. Uh, The eye, eye movement. The sensitization reprogramming. Have you have you ever tried it?
0: EMDR is one of the few modalities
1: I haven't tried. Uh, the the it's, bug- it, it's, it don't work for everybody. Yeah, but I'm always say give it a go because you never know. You might just walk into a room and that person or that therapy or that peer support group works for you. I've so heard- always give them a go.
0: I've had EMDR specialists on the show, uh, practitioners. And the efficacy rate seems quite high. That's one of the things that I do on the show is I aggregate resources. So I talk about every healing mm-hmm. modality I can find and get some sort of expert on here to, to talk about it and also lived experience. So it is really good to hear that um, you found a lot of efficacy in EMDR. Now, mm-hmm. some people think it's either or. It's either therapy or peer support. What do you have to say to them?
1: Try everything. Try it. I've done a bit of everything. Peer support works. Yeah, therapy works. C M D R works. Counseling works. Psychotherapy works. C B T works. But it all depends if it suits you. It all depends on you as an individual. If you walk into a- A therapist who does CBT and it's not for you, try someone else. There's always, there's so many good therapists out there worldwide all doing different things. It is always worth giving it a go. You might just find that person that you just click with. That therapy you just click with.
0: And if you don't, uh, what I always encourage people is like, look, like any group, like any relationship, like how many... Uh, significant others uh, like how many boyfriends or girlfriends do you typically have before you find the one. And it's a very intimate relationship with the therapist. So if the first one is just not clicking, that's okay. It means one of two things, either you're not ready or it's not a fit. Either way, Just keep your feet moving. Try something else. If therapy is just too much for you, uh, like straight on uh, -on one-on-one therapy, then try something else. But try something, whether it be peer support, listening to shows like this. Mine isn't the only one. uh, But shows like this give people the strength to build up to the point where they have the courage and the comfort you go into therapy this this show has been a stepping stone to therapy for thousands of people so Mm. if that works for you that's great too but do something because if you
1: doing nothing isn't going to help you no exactly i completely agree so i knew a lad who come to our group and he come for two years before we finally felt comfortable enough to go for therapy So it it proves it works. And he is a completely different man now. Completely different. It it works. It does work. I've seen it. I've seen people change their lives. It is absolutely amazing to see.
0: Healing happens. It is possible. But it ain't no easy ride. No, it's not. It's a very bumpy road. It's a very bumpy road. But what are your choices? You either nut up and take the tough road, or you destroy yourself. Like, really, Mm. it's either or. Like, would you agree with that?
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, It's like I I did a post earlier on my page about, about an arrow. An arrow has to be pulled back before it can be fired forward. So sometimes you need to take a step backwards to go forwards. So if you think you're in therapy or peer support and you're having a bad day and it's not working for you, then try it again because that next time, you might just be having a bad day. Well, that next time might just be that, wow, yeah, it's for me. You know, sometimes you get to take a step backwards to go forwards. Like when you're in that, I use the analogy of a dark tunnel, that railway tunnel. You can't see the exit. Well, that exit—it might be a windy tunnel. That exit might just be around the corner. There's always someone is always willing to walk at the side here through that tunnel.
0: It's true, and one of the things of caution that I we we see in peer support all the time is uh, somebody go, starts walking down the road. They have a good day or a good week, and they go, "Oh, well, I'm good. I'm fixed." <laughs> and yeah. that is always a disaster every fucking time it's, it's, it's like no you, you just had a good day or a good week you're not fixed man like, yeah. this is a lifelong overnight. no it, it, it's a it's a lifelong thing it's new habits it's like uh going to the gym and you go to the gym for six months and you're like holy crap i'm strong okay i'm good i don't have to go to the gym anymore well what's going to happen you're going to turn into a bag of porridge again
1: yeah, me. <laughs> bag I've of porridge.
0: Well, if you're a binman, you can't be too much of a bag of porridge. You got to be in some kind of uh, decent shape.
1: Not anymore. <laughs> Twenty years ago, maybe.
0: Well, the truck does all the work now, right? You're not picking them up and dumping them.
1: No. Well, yes and no. Uh, we do a lot of humping, but
0: the truck is yeah. so the truck doesn't do it all for you. You still got a grunt and.
1: Yeah, I've still got to run about, and you know, yeah, it's, it's easier than it used to be, but not as easy as people think. Yeah.
0: Well, I, especially when people are, uh, got a heavy load in there every now and then. It's like, oh, you assholes, you should have used two, not one. That's a lot <laughs> of weight. So uh, tell me about this incredibly interesting position that you have when you're not being a binman. Yeah, uh, the lived experience worker at Bradford University. Uh what the hell is that?
1: That is uh using my <laughs> using my experience to help mental health students and future nurses understand okay. what it's like from a client point of view. So I tell my story, do Q and A's uh, help with interviews and and whatever they want me to do. To be honest, but I really enjoy it. I'm a, I'm there again next Thursday. I just I really enjoy it. How often do you go? Uh, it's not a weekly thing. It's a, I get a message. We've got this on, and it all depends if we can get there through work. Because I work full time, so it's having to fit everything around that. So sure. I can't go as often as I'd like to. But I try and do as much
0: as I can. Well, that's fascinating and so smart. Is that a fairly rare thing or or is there in universities, as far as you know, is it fairly widespread that people have somebody with… I have with no it? idea. No idea?
1: I, I didn't even hear about I've not even heard about it until about a year ago.
0: Well, first time <laughs> I got I've… A message it, on the you know I on LinkedIn. I, I, I'm up to my chest in this world and uh, it's the first time I've heard of it. So <laughs> you learn something new every day. I think it's fantastic. <laughs> what has the response been from the psychology students and psychiatry students uh, from your school? Well, they mental
1: health. So there'll be, uh, like, nurses and not okay. psychiatrists and uh, psychothe- no, psychiatrists, just psychotherapists and stuff like that. So more mental health nurses, community mental health nurses and stuff like that, as far as I know. Uh it's got good feedback. There's there, I think there's there might be eighteen of us, something like that. There's quite a number of us who do it from all different backgrounds. And uh we we do our best, we help out, we get good feedback. The they seem to enjoy having us there.
0: Moving back to childhood sexual abuse, this is something that um People don't seem to understand the impact of it, which is why I've asked you some of the questions that I have. Um, there's a show in the states called The View, and I once saw uh, when they were talking about Michael Jackson. They're like, "What touched a couple kids? Uh, you know, played played with their uh, genitals a bit. No big deal. Like it's just a little bit of touching," and they reduced that action uh, by by saying it was no big deal. And I think that there is a lot of that out there. Do do you think that's the the general idea, that people don't understand the traumatic effect that that has on people?
1: Yeah. (coughs) I know I can only ever talk from my own point of view. And I know the effects last a lifetime, regardless of what's happened. Once it's happened, it's happened. There's no hierarchy of grading out a 10 what's happened to you. When it's happened, it's happened regardless, and it lasts a lifetime. And for people to play it down, that causes the stigma and the shame to stay inside.
0: Yeah, because they're basically saying, what's your problem? It's no big deal. When, exactly. so, when it's something that has destroyed many, just hundreds of, th- millions of lives, it's yeah. just, it's destroyed because uh, uh, there's a large amount of people that are just never really heal from it.
1: No, and a lot commit suicide or take their own life, sorry, from uh, from it. And I know people who, who have.
0: Or they become abusers, you know, sexual or physical, I think.
1: Uh, uh, a lot of experts say that. Uh, I've never come across one. I've seen uh, it more the other way. They absolutely detest the abusers. Uh, they'd rather line up against the wall if you get me drift.
0: No, I do. And it, it's amazing to me that there's not more stories of fathers or even mothers being the angry mama bear that uh, have killed the pedophiles. It, it It happens every now and then, but when it does, the news never seems to cover it. And... If they do, it's not favorably. And uh, and they also don't like reporting on the subject. It's almost as if the media outlets promote pedophilia. That's that's the way it seems to me anyway. Have you noticed that uh, it's just a topic that the news won't touch? And, I mean, it's so rampant and does so much damage, but it just never seems to make the news stories.
1: It does over the yeah. <laughs> uh, because I know from my own experience when my first abuser was sentenced it it was worldwide uh, I know somebody who was in New York who I know personally in New York they were on a billboard on, uh, on one of billboards outside one of I don't know how you call them out there one of newsstands or something because they were quite famous in America and uh, it, yeah so, it, and it were all over England. It were all over internet. So I think it, over here is different. I, I can't speak for it's like over in Canada or America, but I, I can only talk from my own experience. I think over here it does get reported on a lot more, especially if the if the famous, if they just, you know, abuses and abuses, but you know, there's famous ones and. The ones down straight the ones down straight generally don't get any publicity if at all you know but the the famous ones do, and I won't name them because uh, I haven't given them any publicity whatsoever yeah
0: tell me about the grooming process what do people like say for the point of view of parents that want to have a, a watchful lie Um what should parents be aware of when it comes to the grooming process so that they can uh, identify potential predators
1: that might be after their kids? See, that's a tough one. I'm going to talk from my own experience and it will go into his house, gifts, trips, you know, money, stuff like that that's that's what happened with me and I know that's what happened with others it you was know, promises of they doing this that and to the, it's that, that that's all I can really say because uh, I can only talk from my own experience and that, that's that was my journey
0: well and you you can't always see it coming
1: so no so it's like I said earlier. I, I didn't even know I was being groomed.
0: Yeah,
1: it was the police and my ex-wife who explained to me that that was grooming. I, I didn't even know.
0: Yeah, it's a slow a frog in the boiling water process, mm. and um, where the water gets tested and tested and tested, and they push and push and push and push until uh, uh, two. so you don't even realize that it's happening that. Um, uh, that it's being normalized and normalized and normalized until they, uh, they realize, okay, n- now I can get yeah. away with this. And, and you don't even know that something bad is happening, which is one of the confusing things. You know, especially like, again, I was between 7 and 12, so I was just a kid. And once it got to the point of actual molestation, you, you don't even know that it's something bad. Matter of fact, the, mm. the abuser flips it so that this is something good. And this is like, you're special. And this is, uh, you know, only you get this special attention. And it's just so sick.
1: Yeah. And they're the skills. They do it over many years. Because <laughs> I know with, with my first one, they found from the 60s, 70s, the 1960s the 1970s, none from 1980s, and then us from 1990s. So he'd been at it a very long time. The the police said it's not that he didn't do it to anybody in 1980s, we just didn't find anybody from 1980s. But he spent a lot of time abroad then. So he's probably done it, but in another country.
0: Do you have any idea as to what the stats are? How widespread um, childhood sexual abuse is?
1: Well, I think the stats in England, in UK, are one in four girls and one in six boys. I think. And is now, that- that's a lot. When you when you think of England, what's that? I don't know, what is it? Is it sixty eight million people live here or something? I don't. I. I not reel it off, off the top of my head, but when you think one in four,
0: and isn't one it in six? Isn't it usually a family member?
1: A lot. Yeah, either family family member or friend. Friend at family. Yeah, it's usually like somebody. Stranger, somebody then, in, then that trust comes in then. Yeah,
0: it's usually somebody inside your circle, not some shadowy yeah. figure that uh, sneaks in through your window <laughs> at night.
1: Yeah, it's very rare that it's somebody who, who they don't know. Well, cause that's how the, cause
0: there has to be a grooming process unless it's just mm. straight up violent rape that like there has yeah. to be a gentle strategic grooming process and that you can only do that if you are in a position to have a intimate relationship with that person. Mm. That's the only way you have a TEDx talk that's coming up.
1: Was it last week?
0: No, oh, that was last week.
1: Yeah, last week, yeah. A week today, Well,
0: So, how'd that go? What'd you think of that?
1: Brilliant. Brilliant. Uh, I was nervous. I was a nervous wreck. I was checking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've wanted to do one for so long. And then uh, to walk in the room and see the big hashtag TEDx, you're like, wow. <laughs> and uh, yeah, you got. Fifteen minutes, and I went over in five. And then I sat down and I thought, well, I should have said this, should have said that, should have said that. <laughs> but I don't practice anything. I don't write up down. I, uh, I just get it straight from here, straight out of here, and just see what happens.
0: Well, it keeps it authentic that way, you know. The, yeah,
1: the, the I, out- I always prefer to be authentic and truthful. People relate to it better when you're you're authentic and it's not scripted as such.
0: Well, at the same in time, argument, it's good to have a a process as well. I uh, I just use bullet points. So I know generally what I want to say. I use the bullet points and um, uh, that tends to, that works for me anyway, but we, we all yeah. have our, our different ways of doing it.
1: Mm-hmm. Each to their own, as we, as we say over here, horses for courses. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Well, uh, Jimmy, thank you for the work that you do. It is so important, and it does save lives. Uh, peer support, telling your story, doing the podcasts, and uh, please send me a, a link to the TEDx talk <laughs> uh, for sure. I, see, yeah, I
1: haven't got it yet, but I will as soon as I get it.
0: Yeah, please do, Jimmy. And uh, I'm really um, glad that we were introduced, and it's a pleasure to meet you. Thank you for being on the show today.
1: Jimmy you, Matt. You take care. All righty.
0: Please stay on the line, Jimmy. You're listening to Operation Tango Romeo, the trauma recovery podcast for veterans, first responders, and their families, and really anybody that's recovering from trauma.